During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Okay. Now, so this is going to be an episode really of two parts. And if you're coming back to this uh, this episode, we're back with Nick Jankel and we were talking about leading and complexity, where in the first part, we really talked about the difference between complexity and complicated. Mm-hmm. We talked about the old world and new world. And Nick did a great job for us in, in helping us try and understand what it is that perhaps we're experiencing, but we can't quite explain. What does it mean for leaders? And actually, what does it mean for the individual leader? Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that we were talking about uh, organisms. We are organisms. We are living and breathing. And by the very nature of that, we are complex in our own right. And then put us together, Absolutely. my word, are we complex? But I want to come back to leading and complexity. And now we're going to really talk about teams. Mm. Because let's be honest, we, we are not really a leader until we have followers. <laughs> and as we, we grow, hopefully, in stature and our businesses grow, we need good, great people better than ourselves in, in order to thrive and in order to be successful. So tell us a little bit now about your thoughts about teams in the context of of complexity. Great. Well, actually, some of this has only really clicked into my mind fully in the last few weeks. So this is very fresh thinking for me. Well, we like um, fresh thought leadership. That's yeah, exactly. Uh, and I've uh, my I've just broken ground on the book about this. So this is um, exciting. And we just brought a product to, to the market called Transformational Teamwork. So for me, a transformational team is a team that can deliver predictable efficiencies in the old world, plus adapt, grow, learn, be purposeful, shape a vision, um, and deliver something new. So that's why why it's transformational. So it's not like it doesn't have all the old characteristics of the efficiency paradigm, but it's also got the effective paradigm. It's not just doing the same. It's not just doing the same thing and hoping it's all going to be okay in five years, because it really isn't. And no. I, you know, you and I are working with leaders and organizations all over the world, different types of organizations, every sector, and every person is saying to me, we are trying to build the plane as we fly it. I've never done that before. I thought I was given, I had to build the plane first and I could fly it, someone else could fly it. Yeah. No, you've got to do it at the same time. And yeah. that's crazy challenging. It's pretty scary. So let's, I sort of, before we get into transformational teamwork, um, and what the characteristics of it and what drives it and, and stuff. I just want to hook back into something we've talked about in the last episode just yes. to give you the why of it. If we're moving from complicated machines, businesses are complicated machines, basically built upon the production line idea, where it basically is a machine, and you just try and make it as efficient as possible, get it out to shops, or, or your version, B2B, B2C. And now we're going, oh my God, we've got an actually living organism uh, with living organisms in it oh, that's scary. But on the other hand, they can self-organize and adapt and grow and they can solve problems for us without having, even me having to know at the CEO. So mm-hmm. I have less to do because everything isn't coming up to the top all the time. They're going, oh, we've got a problem in our store. And we're um, closest to it. And we're closest to it. it. Yeah. And I'm the baker and I'm going to move. It's actually a, very, a real life example from working with the big supermarket. I'm going to move the baking bit machine closer to where we put the bread without asking the CEO rocket science obviously not right but that's actually quite challenging in the efficiency paradigm because everything has to go up to the line manager who then goes oh i I can't make that decision i have to ask him before you know you've got a guy on the golf course going oh yeah yeah okay can i see the data on that you know i'm making a uh an extreme but that's how it kind of kind of has been so if we're then moving to this complex world 
and we realize that. And then we realize in the complex world, the context is more important than the content. And what I mean by that is the relationships in my organization are more important than the products we've got right now because the products are going to change, the processes are going to change, the procedures are going to change, the services are going to change. And the people who have to do that are the people who are in relationship. So context, not the content. Yes. So therefore, we're less concerned about having the master strategy, spreadsheet, etc. We're more concerned about our teams being able to adapt the spreadsheet yep. and make it better over time. Um, what that starts to realize is I can't be the hero who solves everything. I have to create teams that can solve things for the organization. Which is empowering, isn't Which it? Which is amazingly empowering, but it totally challenges the model of technical manager becomes leader who then is the bright, who solves, saves the day over and over again. It's probably human nature, isn't it? As you get promoted or you take a senior role, or you become the boss. Yeah. You think to yourself, I've still got to try and add value and prove myself daily. Absolutely. And actually, by empowering other people, that is the value. Step back, that is the value. And that's the hardest. It's, also, it's not just that, it's just the hardest thing to do. Gotcha. It's actually easy to solve something yourself being brilliant, being clever. You know, I used to think I was an intelligent person and it feels good to be the intelligent one who goes, oh, if you just put, move that to the left, the machine will work better. But if you're running a company with 100,000 staff in 20 markets, um, in 10 sectors, no CEO, and this is a bold statement to make, no matter how many Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge, blah, blah, credentials they've got, mm. no CEO can understand that complex organism fully. It's impossible. You certainly can't understand all the people, 100,000 people you've got and all their lives and difficulties and issues and, and challenges. So you have to give up this, this desire to know everything and put everything into a spreadsheet and instead go, ah, got it. My job is to create a culture that enables intelligent people who may not be as smart as me in my old thought about how smart I am, but they're competent. Yeah. Uh, some of them are less intelligent. That's fine um, because they're relational or because they're creative or whatever it is, dyslexic or whatever it is, right? And I mean less traditionally intelligent. Uh, you know, so GCHQ is now looking for dyslexic people. They're hiring dyslexic people over non-dyslexic people. And dyslexic people in the old world of books and exams are less intelligent, right? They take longer, oh my God, to read through the exam and longer to think through the answer. Um, if you think of intelligence as speed and efficiency on an exam. Well, a lot of companies now, aren't they, are, are proactively looking for neurodiverse people. Exactly. And me, as an ADHDer, Absolutely. Um, that's... Absolutely. That wasn't around in our day, Nick. Because it's diversity. So right. we, we now... The, diversity of thought. Diversity of thought. Uh, it, all diversity is good, essentially. And we've now got literally every single bit of research in the last 20 years shows that teams of people of average IQ, old intelligence, outperform on adaptive, creative, transformational tasks. Um, teams of geniuses who all think the same. But Nick, aren't most of us average? Absolutely. So only... So, so for example... Google used to only employ PhDs in maths and science because right. they thought they wanted the smart genii who also all think algorithmically and pretty much the same. Right. And now they're going, no, we want anthropologists, we want psychologists, we want Forget social the workers. cookie cutter. Totally. We want diversity. We want right. people with ideas. We want people who have just been a carer for their grandparents and spent 10 years out of the workplace. Those, that brings ideas right, from this, from this complex system. Yeah. So that's the why of te transformational teamwork. Okay. I don't have to solve the problem. I can't solve the problem. Stop thinking about trying to solve a broken machine with being by being having a high IQ. Instead, I'm going to empower teams across my business to self-organize solutions. Okay. And I'm still going to keep a role of A, like culture setter, creator, modeler. And B, the most important role of a C-suite is to be the visionary, foresight, strategic thinkers. 
Because one thing I've learned working with lower down managers and everyday frontline staff is a lot of them don't want to be to have to think huge thoughts for the, about the future of an industry. They want to um, be uh, uh, do their work, have fun, go home, and spend their love and time and energy with some another project, another thing. But which in is many fine. ways, that that leader is and needs to be a positive role model. Absolutely, because many people will take their lead off of what Absolutely. they see at the top. And in some ways, when you talk about culture, they're creating that very positive red thread through Absolutely. the organisation. So there's, there's there's real value in what you're describing, but it's a compelling narrative for the future leader. Yes. It's not about you don't have to have all the answers. Absolutely. You haven't got to do this all by Absolutely. yourself. And actually, maybe there's something quite cathartic in the realisation that you can't. There's something amazing about you that. You can't. Done. Because, it, because the intelligent person realizes in a complex world of constantly new information, new technologies, yep. that, they're, that they're struggling to keep up. I've got to read AI. I've got to read machine learning. I've got to read about... Uh, and then you go, oh my God, I can't do it. Overwhelmed, drive so crazy. Yeah. So to say, oh my God, I don't have to know about it. I have to know enough to talk about it, to listen as a translator to that guy and this woman, and we had to put them together. Yep. Uh, I don't have to understand it. And I still get a job as a futurist, systems thinker, strategic thinker, because... Self-organizing teams on the front lines are very good at incremental innovation. The old, the moving the oven closer to the bread, you know, the dough, whatever. They don't tend to be very good at predict, sort of inventing and adapting a new business model for 10 years' time. And haven't these leaders as well got to actually just carve out some time to do nothing other than think? Absolutely. So if you're, if you're running around trying to do everyone else's job because you can't delegate and you've got FOMO and you think by being super busy and being in every single meeting, that shows you're valuable... Uh, so one of the things I people always say to me, well, how do I do this reflection time and this strategic? I go, just literally right now, and obviously I say it because I don't have to do it myself, get rid of half the meetings that you think you have to be at. Yeah. Just ref- say, decline them on your on your. Outlook. It is FOMO though, isn't it? Right, and see if, anyone, see if the, machi- the machine breaks down, you know, without you there. And if you really needed there, someone will say, I need you to come to the next one because we really need your input. And then you know you're actually needed rather than just showing up to yet another hour-long meeting. Or cut down your meetings from an hour to 30 minutes and see what happens. Okay. You know, these are all hacks to try and get more of that space. I like the term hacks. Which is reflection, pause, thinking. Uh, I, I don't know many leaders even at the moment who have, any, who have any time for anything other than get stuff done. So how can you well, think Gates about the future? Busy is the new stupid. Totally. Right. Really is. Okay. And if you're doing nine meetings a day realistically 8 30 because someone had woken up there back and back. then you're back to back and then you're get, doing your 12 2500 emails between seven and nine you see your kids to bed you and then you're like well, there's no time for foresight for reflecting and the adaptive system needs information about what's going on all over the organization all over the system okay. and it needs time to reflect and the most important thing is and um I won't go deep into this, but there are two brain networks in our brain that we've now seen. One of them is very good at solving problems quickly, but only problems we've solved before. We call in our work control and protect mode. Um, There's a whole other brain network that we've evolved for novel problems, unusual, weird, difficult problems. But to get to it, we have to be relaxed. We have to be connected. We have to feel safe. We have to be trusting ourselves. We have to have not 200 emails to answer. So we can't even get into the right brain network for reflective, adaptive thought if we're just hammering stuff all day. So, wow, we're our own biggest blocker. We are, okay. absolutely. Now, I know you've got to talk to us about four four elements, aren't you, mm. uh, which are important to this this kind of, the, as you say, transformational teamwork approach. Yes. So what are the, just outline those four, and then let's just go through them. So there are four types of 
people, I think, who emerge in the business space, or four roles in a team okay. have to be filled. And now one person could do all four, one person could do two, we can have four people doing okay. one each, or some variation. And I'm going to make this easy to understand by thinking about the A-team. Da, 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 that yeah, well, that, you and okay. I will be showing our age now. If we're starting to exactly. Exactly. I actually did show it. Uh, I showed the clip at the beginning last week to 200 people. Yeah. And I said, "Does anyone?" Cause I, had to, I had to work out. Did I you to, show the original? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You got I had to, to get some research about if anyone didn't. I didn't know if anyone in the room didn't know it. And out of 200 people, of which they weren't all senior leaders, there was you know a whole team. Of course. Um, only three people didn't know what it was. You. I think they were the. Otherwise, you know, that would have you would have felt very. I'd be like, oh my god, I'm time. so sorry. I've just alienated my audience. <laughs> oh, keynote speaking 101. Anyway, um, a team four roles, and I believe these were identified for a reason. You see them in lots of different uh, movies yep. when there's a team. Um, so you have the get stuff gun guy, which we call in our work the champion. So that's the BA Baracus. You got to break down some doors. You got to get stuff done. You got to organize. You got to um, push and be strong. It's a strength uh, kind champion. of role. The champion. Okay. Then we got the commander, who's the analytical one, the clever one, the one who's trying to make sense of it all. Yes. Uh, and that's the Hannibal. You know, yeah. the, the, yeah. the the with the cigar. The cigar. Yeah. Then you got the sort of creative maverick guy. Um, uh, you know, the the helicopter pilot. You know, the the guy yeah, yeah. who's he's, who's he's, figuring stuff out and he's creative and a bit wacky and zany. The yes. maverick. maverick. And then you've got the connector, the one who face man, face man, you've got the one who makes solves all the internal tensions, uh, the peacemaker, but also connects with clients. Right, right. If you're a, a, a company that's got brilliant technicians, uh, great analysis, some great innovation, but no one who can connect with the customer, you won't sell Dilly Squat. So the champion, the commander, the maverick, and the connector. So yeah, we call the maverick the creator, and then the connector is the is the peacemaker. Now, gotcha. I want to be really clear. All of us can do all four. This is not a Myers-Briggs, you're in a box and <laughs> stay there and don't come out. Right. But we do tend to grow into one of one or more of them strengths-wise. Naturally. And naturally. And all four of them have also got shadow sides, right? Okay. The dark sides. The, we can go, there's depth maybe we don't want to go well, into. A little bit right like that. Is it the Hogan dark where our strengths become a weakness? We Overused strengths become a weakness. Gotcha. Right. right. Um, or underused strengths are, a weak, are also a weakness. So if you're, um, so for example, just, let's take the connector because everyone thinks the connector is awesome. Peacemaker, um, empathy, uh, storytelling, yep. sales, whatever, right? Um, a, a connector that's um, addicted to connection, right? Overused strength. Um, we could be people pleasing, uh, manipulative, uh, fawning, um, codependent, enmeshed in everyone else's business. Yeah. So that's the shadow side. That's the addiction. The allergy side is the don't have enough of this connector stuff. Um, is cold, aloof, alienated, um, you know, uh, distant, etc. So all of them have got shadow sides, either allergies or addictions. So those are the four roles, and every every team has to have those four roles. But not necessarily four people in them. Right, I love right? that, and I love the fact that we're talking about the A team. What, what more could we? What more can we do? Um, so then, they, then they again, then you start to look at it, and this is the, just spent the last year trying to you know work on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you realise, ah, these roles then sort of scale up at the next level of complexity into four characteristics of the team. Right, we're need. going to talk about that now. Exactly. Aren't we? Now, I'm going to there's four characteristics I think we're going to talk about. Shared vision, shared vision, co-creativity, yep. collective responsibility, yep. and mutual trust. Yeah. All so right, they're all collective. Now all of the words you use have the first word is something to do with collective shared togetherness. Gotcha. Right. You're trying to get away from the individual hero genius person, right? Great. Because we've all got to share these things. All right. Well, let's start with number one, shared vision. So this is the commander. What's the best thing about the commander can do is have a vision of the future. 
see what we want to do and continuously make sense of new information so that we adapt the vision as we go. And what's important about this quality is um, a shared vision or visions means that all the people in the team can find their way to solve what they're doing without being told what the answer is because we know what we're all trying to get to. Okay. So we, we're trying to create, you know, uh, uh, a service that does X for Y people that delights and improves their lives or whatever. Now you go away in your bit of the business and you do what you need to do as the intelligent, adaptive teams and organized individuals you are. Uh, we don't have to tell you, we don't have to cascade it down into 10,000 spreadsheets because we don't know the answer because that's your part of the business. It's your function, your HR. You do an HR that does this shared vision, right? I think my first episode, the first ever episode of the Leadership Enigma was on Commander's Intent. Right. Yeah, it's shared intent. It's the old word for it, right? Okay. Um, uh, but I like vision because it brings to mind that we don't have it yet and we're building it as okay. we go. We're crafting it. We're crafting it as we go. Okay. But one thing I want to talk about shared vision, one thing that's super important, this is a super practical thing for leaders. The speed of change in the world, the vucanus, you know, the fact that literally days go by and the world turns upside down again, yeah. which, you know, I've just, we've just experienced uh, where we're sitting where we are, but it's happening everywhere. It pushes an enormous amount of a pressure on us to, to make sense of it quickly. Mm. Um, sense making on your own is definitely possible and good, but it's extremely hard to do uh, as an isolated being. Sense making is much better done. In a group. Team sport. Team sport. So yeah. I do it with my business partner. I do it with my wife. I do it with my kids. With something part of leadership as a parent is to sense make with and for your kids. Right. Okay. Um, and so sense making is super important. And it, leaders tend to think they have to do it on their own. And it's a m massive error. And if you're a leader, you should be sense making with your reports. So you're helping them make sense of the team that you run. And you should be sensing, sense making with your peers as in the senior leadership team or the cohort, the C-suite cohort, um, at the level of the business. And so you should be doing it regularly. It's very collaborative. It's very collaborative. Because also you don't know what things mean yourself. No. How can you possibly know, is monkeypox good or bad for us? I don't know. Let's think about it. You know. Well, this is where you want to tap into the collective, uh, well, the diversity of thought. Exactly. Which is not maybe going to be around just your top team table. Exactly. Right, okay. And that, so that's part of the thing about complex systems is information flow is, is the cru most crucial thing. Okay. And if you don't have a way for those frontline workers to feedback their insights about what's going on with the customers to you at the top table, you're not getting the information you need. It's that feedback. So another right? hack I say to people, and I said it to a very large company last week is, don't look at customer complaints as something that's ugh, yucky because it makes you emotionally feel bad. Look at that as the gold dust of what your customers want tomorrow. Feedback is a gift. Feedback's a gift. So is there a process in your business whereby telephone call center staff who you're often the lowest paid and the furthest away, nope. possibly in India, possibly in Bangladesh, whatever, have a capacity to feedback things they're sensing into your sense making as the boss. And gold dust it might be. Gold dust it might be. Okay. Uh, and painful it might be, but then improve your products. Great. Okay. So okay. that's, so so that's shared, shared vision. vision. So it includes constant sense making. So the vision has to be constantly envisioned okay. it's an act it's an, it's an active act it's not something that stops once you did the five-year plan gotcha okay so number two co-creativity so this yeah. is about be allowing people to have new ideas 
um, to be agile, to think thoughts, to experiment with new ideas. It's one thing to have ideas. It's very hard for organizations to allow people to experiment. And the good news is- exper- And fail. And fail. And that's, see, the good news, we call it smart experimentation um, because you can, experimentation doesn't have to be a free-for-all. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a waste. It doesn't have to be chaotic. In fact, a good scientist, I'm a former scientist, knows that you have to be super rigorous with creativity. So in every little idea for, you know, should we develop a little thing with the plastic? You can test the hypothesis without building a factory that makes them. You can test the hypothesis. Does this make things better? If we put up a hole here, people don't get um, liquids burning hot coffee down their throat. Let's test it. So our rule of smart experimentation is uh, two weeks, test the hypothesis, two weeks, $200. That's the rule. Right. And then come back. I kind of like that, isn't it? Here's 200 bucks. Go away and test it. But don't try and test most ideas have like 20 hypotheses in them. You can't test this. Not too many variables. So you have to use rigor to, to come down and, you know. Defining the problem again. Defining the problem again. So that's cre- So you want your people to be creative. Yep. You also want them to be creative between functions. Um, so you want them to be creative within HR and finance or whatever it is. So this is collaborating across the business. Absolutely. So we call it co-creativity or interdependent creativity. Gotcha. Right? Okay. Um, and you want people to be able to form together in co-creative teams um, to solve an interesting problem that requires a bit of HR, a bit of personnel, a bit of finance, because any innovation that's customer focusing will need everyone to do something slightly different right. if it's a significant innovation. Okay. Right. So that's the co-creativity function. Um, the next one is what's the next one? Collective responsibility. Okay. So this is a really interesting one because people think it's about purely accountability, and it's definitely a part part of it. Okay. So a- accountability and dependability is an important part of this, which super simple is. If I say I'm going to do it, I do it, or I renegotiate in advance of the deadline by saying, actually, I've realized, having looked at the problem deeper, it's going to take me an extra week. Is that going to work? Okay. Not just letting people down. So there's a congruence there. If you say it, you do it. Yeah, but if or you, you renegotiate in your advance. Gotcha. And if you mess it up, you do the work of learning what didn't go wrong, and you bring it to people and go, my bad, I made a mistake, and I now need to do this. We now, need, we now have learned this. So there's an openness, there's a humility there. So it's not just get it done, it's get it done gotcha. with some provisos that when you're adapting, get it done has to be adapt- adaptable. Right. Um, and the, one of the biggest mistakes I ever see um, junior people making is that they, they miss a deadline or they miss something out um, and they could have either cleared it up in advance because they knew they were going to and renegotiated and everyone feels... So when you when you... Being dependable definitely is about just doing it. I know that. I know Sally, when she says it, she gets it done. That is an incredible gift to a leader, right. to, know, to have a dependable person. When they say they've got it, they've got it. But most people can't be dependable like that on everything when we're adapting and emerging and there's complex stuff going on. So the two other functions of that, of the pre-failure negotiation, also builds dependability. Oh, my God, Sally, when she can't do something, she comes to me early giving me time to adjust what I've done or tell my boss that we're going to be late rather than she tells me the morning of we don't have the deck. Um, and I learn that she's a capable, smart, dependable person who knows when she's about to to create a deadline and ask for permission and we renegotiate. Or if she doesn't do that, she fully owns it and that makes her even more dependable because I now know that if she makes a mistake, she doesn't blame it on someone else. She doesn't go, oh, the customers with this. Oh, the market's terrible. She owns it, her part of it, 100% her part. And she she develops it. And you can't have any form of team without this kind of responsibility taking. And you're talking, aren't you, here now about elements of building trust, having a culture of psychological safety exactly. and a growth mindset of, hey, it didn't work yet. 
And here we go. What have we learned from it? And Which is the fourth one? Mutual trust. Okay, so let's talk about mutual trust. Um, because without the trust, the, the trust is like the connective tissue of all of this goodness. Um, and it's really the unlock to all the other three. Okay. Right? Um, and um, I want to say one more thing, actually, it's in my mind about this um, shared responsibility or collective responsibility. Yeah. One of the things I see a lot is senior leaders going, we've just done a whole empowerment thing to get everyone to be responsible for their own bit and to step up and have a, a founder's mindset, entrepreneurial mindset, or yep. whatever, which is about responsibility, right? Yep. But what we have to realize is after 20 years of telling people that they need permission to do X or Y, or I'm basically disempowering them, which scientists call learn helplessness, um, just because you say they're empowered doesn't mean 20 years of habits suddenly change. So you have to empower people. Um, and that also means that you give them some of the rewards for taking the risk themselves, for being responsible, right? Not just taking all the all the risk. And what I mean by that is, if you want people to have an entrepreneur's mindset, then the great thing about being an entrepreneur is you win some of the things that taking the risk and being responsible. Win for, some, lose some, right? You win some, and you win something for you. You get a share of the gain. And companies are very good at um, sharing the risk and saying, well, you're responsible now. You're, it's your bit of the business. Um, they're not as good at sharing the reward. Gotcha. Okay. So that's just something Learned to think about. Yeah, I like that. And then mutual, mutual trust. trust then. Mutual trust. This is like the, you, the this bit. This is unlocking all of it. Unlocks all of it. Okay. So I've long said trust is the lubricant of transformation, right? Uh, and think about it this way. Transactional relationships are very simple. You do X, you get paid Y. You do um, Z and you get a promotion to SVP, VP. We'll make up a new P at some point because we want to give you something. It's transactional. Yeah. It's, a, it's an equation. It's a super interesting, good equation. But then someone says, well, now we have to innovate a new business model. We don't know what it's going to be. We don't know when we're going to launch it. We don't know what, even if it's a product or a service. We don't know if it's even going to be in the same sector we've been in. And it's going to be a five-year journey. And they're like, okay, what's the transaction? Oh, we don't know because we're emerging it, right? So trust is needed for any form of significant change. Because people have to put themselves on the line. They have to take mistakes, uh, make mistakes. They have to take a risk. Um, they have to put their head above the parapet and go, actually, I've long thought that our business model is a bit nuts because I used to be a customer or whatever, and I didn't ever want to say it. And people are like, oh, my God, why didn't you say it three years ago? Yeah. Because we just found out that our business model died last week. There's that safety piece again, isn't there? safety piece. So trust is a function of safety. It's one of the feeders of trust. And actually, I read this article this morning uh, by a former chancellor in the UK who was talking about the current chancellor who has just lost the trust of the nation, the entire global stock. Um, On the back of the mini budget. Uh, uh, once you've lost trust, it's extremely hard to get it back. Well, most businesses will know that, right? Most businesses will know that. And actually, from a, I used to be on the sort of advertising consumer side. The definition almost of brand trust is that you can make a mistake like your washing powder corrodes clothes yep. or your liquid uh, kill someone and you still have a business afterwards because there's a bit enough trust in the bank right. that you could take a withdrawal and there's something left. Okay. Now, the thing about trust is in the age of two years of pandemic when we're all just working on saving the surviving. business, surviving, we're, co we're taking trust out the bank and there's not a lot of trust going in the bank. And then we ask people to do something difficult or adaptive, or could you actually take a pay cut? Because, and people are like, no, because you haven't. Get so we need to make fed. a deposit before we start to make. You've got to make a deposit, and the deposits okay. are things like away days, dinners, uh, checking in with my team once a week. Just I don't want to talk about the business. How are you doing? I know your mm. wife had a, a operation. I know your kids difficult. That is trust. 
But there's another bit of trust which I love, um, and this is, comes from our work in conflict transformation. Um, and my business partner and I actually have a little sideline in um, relationship uh, coaching. Trust is built through all these other other ways, safety and whatever. But one of the probably the I think the the most powerful builder of trust is that people can go through a difficult time with you, and you stayed kind, you stayed open minded, and the ten- tense moment was worked through and you're still able to be there together afterwards because tension is inevitable in all relationships but tension is even more inevitable in adaptive businesses that are growing and trying stuff new out there's always going to be tensions oh that's interesting i think we should do it this way i think we should do that way do i then freak out react get aggressive grumpy or do i withdraw or do i stay in the conversation even though it's difficult for me emotionally difficult Mm -hmm. And I show you that I can go through a difficult time. I can go through you reacting. I can even go through me being triggered and come back and because I was super rude to you yesterday. I realized I was utterly freaked out by the situation. And my bad. And I, you know, I'm really sorry. And if you see me doing that again, know that I am. Call me out. Call me out, even though I'm your boss. Because that I can still have Feedback, strength and power. Openness, safety, all of this. I can comes. still have my status as long as I clear it up elegantly. It doesn't challenge your identity. It doesn't make you weak. No. Um, if you come back and go, I'm all over the shop. Sorry, I'm an emotional bag of mess. That You do lose status. You do lose respect. But if you can clear up stuff elegantly, which is difficult, and most leaders have not been taught how to clear up their, their mistakes uh, elegantly, uh, which is the core of conscious leadership, really, um, they can't build trust through tension. Okay. So that's, that's the mutual trust bit. So, so it, and, and it's, it's the one bit of the business that is the least invested in up to the current time. Gotcha. Wow, it's another jam-packed conversation, isn't it? Well, part Rico, two, Rico. And <laughs> Wow, look at, I mean, loads of notes here and uh, wow, the show notes will be, will be a challenge. Just tell us again, uh, best way for people to con- uh, connect uh, with you, have LinkedIn, the conversation. Nick Jankel, just yep. say yo, um, whatever. Uh, website, switchonnow.com. And there's stuff there for individuals. There's stuff there for everyone. There's books. I've got books all over the shop. I've got articles, whatever. Um, Dog leadership yeah, here, there, and everywhere. Connect, connecting. And that's what actually come back to this thing about connection. Um, the most important thing most leaders can do is prioritize what I am now calling relational intelligence. Yeah. Their ability to be in relationships, to listen, to empathize, to validate, to mirror back, to feel what people are saying beneath their words, to show up, to apologize, to make mistakes elegantly, to clear things up, all within relational intelligence. Um, And it's probably the greatest lack in most leaders I know. And it's the bit that if you think about it scaled up to your organization, it's about the lack of trust. And without trust, you can't transform. Can I call it human-centered leadership as well? You you can, and you should. That is, (laughs) what can I say? Pen drop. Listen, thanks for being a superstar. Boom. And coming on to the Leadership Enigma again but actually doing it in person it's actually been absolutely brilliant Nick you're a superstar thanks thank very you. much thank you join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the leadership enigma we'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel and remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org download the Insights app and start learning for free Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.